Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is the legendary commentator Andres Cantor, who tells some amazing stories from his career, which you are going to enjoy, I promise. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jurgen Klopp, Lisa Baird, and Luis Miguel Echegaray. So check those interviews out, as well as all the other ones we've had. It would be absolutely huge for this podcast growth. If you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little bit of time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Andres Cantor on very soon here, but let's take a few minutes to talk soccer news with my friend Taylor Rockwell of our partner, The Total Soccer Show, which you should be listening to if you aren't already. Taylor, how are you? I'm doing well. We have Man United winning games and Christian Pulisic scoring goals. I think that's about all you can ask for as a Man United U.S. fan. So what happens when they meet each other in the FA Cup semis? Uh, I, I cry and, and hope that that doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm really hoping we get a London derby and a Manchester derby. That's what I'm extremely hopeful for. We'll see if that ends up being the case. I thought we already got the draw. Oh, you're right. We did. I forgot that happened during the Real Madrid game, and I just wasn't paying attention. So it is Man United Chelsea. Grant Wall's yeah. breaking news to me on this episode. <laughs> it All is. Right. It is. I um, mean, I, I guess I'm going to root for him to not play in that game. Maybe that's what I'm going to root for. I don't know. How about, how about, you root, how about that? Yeah, right. How, do, how about you root for 4-3 United? There hat trick for Pulisic. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the veteran move. Well done, sir. Well done, Grant Wall. Well, let's talk about Christian Pulisic mm-hmm. because he had a really big week this week. He did. Uh, just a terrific goal to help beat Man City and lock up the title for Liverpool. Another good performance in Sunday's FA Cup quarterfinal win against Leicester. Um, He might have strained a muscle (laughs) late in the game and came off. Frank Lampard saying afterward uh, that it was something that was a slight concern, so he brought him off. He didn't sound too worried overall. But what are your thoughts on Christian Pulisic's week? I mean... I didn't love the end to it. Uh, the commentator in that game d- did his best to sort of keep making me feel better and then dash those hopes quite expertly because it was like, oh, you know, you always see a player iced up, although that does seem very severe. But you never know what these situations, although you never want to see the ice bag on there. Uh, so that wasn't my favorite. But I thought uh, I, I wanted to see if he started this game this weekend, which he did, because starting midweek, there's an idea that if it's just squad rotation, like maybe he plays one game, he takes one off, then he plays one next week, and that's sort of his role within the team. That he starts two in a row and two in quick succession, to me, feels like a good indicator of how much he has risen or where he is in Frank Lampard's plans. Yeah, I, I, Lampard has to feel good about it, and mm-hmm. he should, uh, because Pulisic's been terrific. A um, couple things I would say. One is I'm starting to see a lot of comparisons, including from Miguel Delaney today, uh, maybe from one of the commentators to Michael Owen, oh and, um, and and the specific comparison that Miguel made was that he likes the way Pulisic rides tackles at full speed, and he thought that was Michael Owen like. Now I presume that they're comparing him to Michael Owen early in his career. Let's hope so. Uh, but while I agree with that and think that's a nice comparison. It also made me worried about what happened to Michael Owen Mm -hmm. in an injury-filled career and an often injury-filled situation for Christian Pulisic. And is there any worry that if you ride tackles at full speed too often, that might lead to injuries? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because... 
even if it's if, if it's an asset, and it absolutely is, and I'm, I'm sure you're not saying this, nor am I, that like we don't want him to stop doing that for fear of getting no. injured. But uh, we saw it with Mendy, that if Mendy does make contact there uh, when Pulisic scores the sort of uh, solo counterattacking goal, like he's going flying because he's at full speed, and you, you have that risk with people who have that level of acceleration, that if you take one little kick, and it's why people complain about, like, oh, soccer players dive all the time. It's like, no, if you're running at maximum speed and someone clips your foot, you are going flying. And yeah, if you do that enough time, eventually it's going to lead to injury and that eventually may have been today with the uh the the ice bags we saw on there so it's definitely a risk his dancing is better than michael owens i have to believe i've seen him dance on tiktok i have not seen michael owen dance maybe it's about the same so i I see the comparison there as well but i mean just that i i know people pointed out that city on Pulisic's goal bad defending i get it but still the the acceleration the change of pace the cojones to do what he did on that goal got me pretty excited. Yeah, I mean, when's the last time we saw an American do something like that in the Premier League? I don't know if we've ever seen somebody do it like that. We've seen Clint Dempsey score some really great goals. But, yeah, to see him sort of back up the hype these past couple games, and obviously has had other performances this season that were impressive, but two games in a row of doing that and being a very good player for Chelsea. It's not like he had lights out, oh, he's never going to reach this level again. He was just consistently very good. He scores the goal in the one game. He creates lots of moments today. And I felt like it was a sort of sign of where he is developed and how much he's developed he's playing like a 72 million dollar player there we go and and it's something that to continue that you got to stay healthy so Mm -hmm. you know fingers crossed for christian pulisic uh but this is impressive the one last point i would make is and i tweeted this uh, is it just me i mean he's not at leon goretzka level but christian pulisic looks more jacked than he was Mm -hmm. pre-virus like is he one of these guys who's been in the weight room uh, maybe it's like that's what happens if you can't do a bunch of cardio is you just bulk up. And maybe that's also a thing he needed because if you are slight of frame and you're playing in a league that is as physical as the Premier League, you're going to take some hits. And we also know that that's a thing that teams will do. If they think they can physically knock you off your game, they're going to do that to try to get that advantage. So, yeah, maybe add some some LBs up top and you can shoulder some of those challenges a bit more. Let's make him the new Troy Deeney is, I guess, what I'm saying. I'm, I'm good with that. I'm actually a little worried about Leon Goretzka. I, I, that can't be natural. <laughs> Whatever do you mean, Grant? There's never been any sort of performance-enhancing issues in soccer. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> so, great week for U.S. coaches. Pellegrino, Matarazzo, clinches promotion to the German Bundesliga with Stuttgart. Uh, also on Sunday, Jesse Marsh wins the Austrian Bundesliga with Salzburg. They got the double after winning the Austrian Cup. Pretty impressive considering... Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse Marsh lost Erling Haaland in January, lost to Kumi Minamino in mm-hmm. January to two pretty good teams, Liverpool and Dortmund, still comes on to win the double. Um, I don't know how much the public knows about Pellegrino Matarazzo, but pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I wasn't even really aware of what he was doing. And, and we're a podcast that focuses on Americans who are doing things in Europe and the excitement that comes with that. So reading a bit more about him and, and the sort of disclaimer that you'll see is like he's the first American raised, American born coach. <laughs> uh, like you see those sort of disclaimers to differentiate from, say, a David Wagner who's at Schalke. But to then realize what that means and where he's come from and that he will be managing in the Bundesliga and that Stuttgart were willing to roll the dice on him when he, 
I think because of his relationship with Nagelsmann at Hoffenheim, I believe it was. Yeah. Like, he has that sort of pedigree, but I think then to be able to go in, and we've seen that before, like Mikel Arteta goes to Arsenal and is still sort of trying to figure it out a little bit, obviously has had less time there than uh, Matarazzo has had with Stuttgart, but it means that he can sort of walk the walk, and that's what you want to see. Yeah, no, that's impressive. Um, you know, and Stuttgart's not like a, a small team. They've got mm-hmm. a lot of history, and, and now they're back in the Bundesliga. Uh, Jesse Marsh uh, just continues to impress. My only question with him is how long is he going to be at Salzburg? I've seen a lot of speculation that he will not be there after this season. And if it's to the right club, there's been some talk about Dortmund. There was even some talk about maybe Leipzig if Nagelsmann were to move on. Dortmund seems like maybe the one that makes a bit more sense, but that would be a big jump. So if he stays with Salzburg, then I hope he continues to win. And if he moves elsewhere, I guess it would be ideal if he kept winning there as well. I will say this about Dortmund. And I I know they've got a ton of talent on that team. Um, You know, they... Or, you know, qualify for Champions League. But this last game of the season, 4 nothing loss at home, really poor. Yep. Um, and there were another couple of other situations late in the season, home loss to Mines, mm-hmm. uh, where you're kind of like, if you were a coach who really had your players listening to you, this type of stuff wouldn't be happening. No, yeah, I, th- I think it, it has been the, it's the reason why even when Dortmund were three points off Bayern or four points off Bayern, there was still this conversation of, but is Lucien Favre the right coach for that club? And it's why those questions still loom, is because you don't have the sort of squad motivation so consistently, and more specifically, you don't have the consistency of performances overall that... Like, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but, like, Bayern are this juggernaut that maybe they'll drop a point here, maybe they'll drop a point there, unless Nico Kovac is there, in which case they drop more than a few points, but they make up for it. Like, you have to have that level of consistency, and you have to, I think, have that start with the manager who's kind of overseeing everything, controlling everything, down in the nitty-gritty. That feels like a Nagelsmann thing. That feels like why they've had the success there. Maybe that feels like a Jesse Marsh thing, given his background. So, I guess what we're saying is Jesse Marsh to Dortmund confirmed? Is that where we are with this one? Tomorrow. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, NWSL started its tournament here in the U.S. on Saturday with two games. They were both good games. North Carolina beat Portland 2-1 late in added time on a Lynn Williams goal. Washington Spirit upset Chicago. Rose Lavelle looking good Mm -hmm. in that game in the nightcap. Also, lots of talk about the anthem protests against police brutality toward black Americans. NWSL made a very specific decision here to have the national anthem be played. And, you know, the players were saying this a little bit in the days leading up to the game starting. There were a lot of internal discussions Mm -hmm. inside teams. This was very much a players-led effort to kneel, uh, the vast majorities of these teams uh, during the anthem for everyone to be wearing Black Lives Matter T-shirts mm-hmm. and armbands. And in the nightcap, uh, just a very uh, powerful moment with uh, Julie Ertz and Casey Short of the Chicago Red Stars um, together um, before this game. And, you know, this get gets away from you know, the sport itself. This is a lot mm-hmm. bigger than the sport itself. And uh, I thought it was an extremely powerful moment. Uh, I am left not being totally sure myself what the league should be doing here, whether they should be having the national anthem played at all. Um, but 
I feel like important stuff is happening. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would agree with your take on the anthem as well, because it doesn't really make sense to me. I like I never really had that big of a problem with the anthem being played at all. I think it goes back to World War Two uh, and the kind of like trying to create national drive and everything like that. When you're doing it in a closed stadium, it makes less sense. But then I get from the like an optic standpoint, it is then an, an incredibly easy thing to get hit on for, oh, they stopped doing the national anthem. That's how much they hate America. And so I, under, I feel for their position, but I think then it's uh, incumbent upon them to like better contextualize what's happening, better explain what's happening. So it's not just a, hey, here's some people kneeling during the anthem and we're moving on. And it's like, wait, wait, that was not what you guys were OK with a couple months ago. Things have changed. Let's talk about why they've changed. Yeah. No, I think everyone needs to get on the same page. And mm-hmm. I think NWSL needs to really f- figure out in the coming games how they want to to explain this. If they yeah. want the, the meaning to be there, the context to be there, the discussion to be there, it needs to be there. Yeah, and I think the issue for me is that like you don't you have very limited press access and even when you do you have to be at a distance and you don't have the normal ability to be there. You don't have thirty people afterwards asking, like what why like as tone deaf as that would be, like why were you so emotional? Like what was happening in this moment? Like you can't sort of get those stories as readily as you would otherwise. So it leads to you see these kind of like thirty second clips of Casey Short and Julie Ertz kneeling together and it's powerful, but it loses some of the I think the like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, the just the understanding of what's happening because you don't have reporters there and press there to sort of help spread the awareness of the message. Yeah, it's a good point. And I've tried to think over the last couple of days what I would do in this situation as a teammate. I would probably kneel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also an Eagle Scout for what that's worth. Uh, and, you know, I can remember growing up and, and putting a lot into understanding, the you know, the flag and how to fold the flag and mm-hmm. what it means and how to honor and respect it. And, um, and so at the same time, I feel like this is an appropriate, peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I just, I, I I just, on the one hand, realize this is going to be uncomfortable and, and painful for some people, but I hope everyone explains what the protests are for. The protests, Colin Kaepernick's protest originally was about police brutality toward black Americans. This is still basically what the protest is about. Now, individuals may have different, some different things that they're protesting. Um, I know for a fact that pride in America is certainly at a, a lower point overall among its citizens. I think I can stand back and, and say that right now. Um, and so some people may have different reasons, but I was thinking about Kaepernick this weekend. I was thinking about Megan Rapinoe back in 2016, who took a knee during the national anthem for her club and for her country and took a risk that yeah. her livelihood would be taken away from her as it has been for Kaepernick. Now, Megan Rapinoe herself would say, I'm white, and so my livelihood wasn't taken away from me like like Colin Kaepernick's. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where like, you have to sort of appreciate the stance Kaepernick takes, the stance that some of his teammates took with him, and then certainly Megan Rapinoe. Megan Rapinoe, though, I, I, interesting we're talking about taking a stance while kneeling, uh, but Megan Rapinoe also not one to ever shy away from sort of uh, like 
engaging in these sort of conversations because obviously she feuded with the president of the United States for a good long month. I mean, yeah, it's it's a credit to her, uh, but certainly a credit to Kaepernick for, I think, starting the movement. And then, to your point, spreading the awareness that it's not it's not as though every player despises the flag to to argue that is to be disingenuous in my in my opinion it's to bring awareness to an issue that i think a lot of people myself included have never had to experience and maybe would not have otherwise ever thought about were it not for movements like this yeah and the whole point of the the protests in the last six weeks in america have been peaceful protests that's something that everyone should respect yeah and and so i do respect what's happening out in utah at this tournament uh, I hope we get a little more context uh, that the league can help with as as time goes on here. And look, totally separately, I'm excited for the soccer. I mean, yeah. it's good to yeah. watch soccer happening in the United States. Uh, these were good games yesterday. Personally, I feel like uh, Rose Lavelle, if she wants to be the best player in the world, mm-hmm. needs to be the best player in the world at club level, not just national team level. And she hasn't really done that to his, this point in her career. And this this tournament's an opportunity for that. Yeah, I agree. Daryl and I were sort of of the opinion that she is the best player right now for the women's national team. We had Kim McCauley on the show last week. I think she was uh, still advocating for Julie Ertz as being the most important player, which is probably true. But Rose Lavelle is the one who maybe this is our sort of nominal Washington loyalty in there. Uh, we, we, we are consistently hyped to get to see her because of what she does. And it's I don't know why this matters to me, but it does. Seeing Rose Lavelle in person, I have this sometimes. I had this with, with Gattuso as well, where I expected him to be like six foot four. Rose Lavelle is the smallest person I think I've maybe ever seen. And yet, to do what she can do and handle the physicality and still just embarrass people makes her all the more exciting to watch. It's, it really is. It's great to have soccer back, soccer in the United States back, but it's mostly great to just have Rose Lavelle back. It is. And, and look, I want to see Rose Lavelle be the best player in this tournament. I want to see her lead her team to the title. She's 25 years old now. That's not that young in soccer terms Mm -hmm. if you're wanting to establish establish yourself as the best player in the world. Let's see it happen. Let's see it happen. This is me nodding. I am in full agreement. (laughs) Uh, Also in women's soccer this week, Australia-New Zealand gets Women's World Cup 2023. Not too far off. It's it's three years away, but... um, Thoughts. I mean, I I was I honestly would have been okay with either one. It came down to Australia, New Zealand, and Colombia. Uh, I I've been wanting to go to Colombia, so it was Me it too. would have been an excuse to do that. But I've also never been to Australia or New Zealand, uh, so I look forward to that. Daryl pointed out on our show that it will be because it will be summer. It will actually be there winter, but I think it's like a high of sixty five. That does seem a bit uh, more manageable than playing in like you know the ninety five degrees we have around here these days. So I think for that reason, I'm excited. And then the expanded format and the it seems like the infrastructure will be there the commercial side will be protected and maybe there'll be some some more money for the women's game as well so i think for those reasons i'm excited not so much for like the 17 hour plane ride or whatever it might be (laughs) um i covered the 2000 olympics um which i think was the last time that both the u.s men and women qualified for the same olympic tournament so i was going all over the place in australia to cover both the U.S. men and the U.S. women. I, wait, 2008 was as well. Sorry, but uh, but 2000 was great. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I remember going to games in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, um, Canberra, like all over the place, and uh, really like Australia. Uh, I'm excited to go to Perth for the first time during this World Cup, home of Sam Kerr. Never been to New Zealand before, so I think that should be interesting. 
uh, I might check out the uh, Lord of the Rings of thing they, they've got over there. If that yeah. makes me a Lord of the Rings dork, I guess so be it. But I think I think when it won an Academy Award and is like one of the highest grossing movies of all time, I don't know if it makes you a dork anymore. I think it just <laughs> it's just the appropriate response to being in New Zealand. I, I want to go do Flight of the Concords things and what we do in the shadows things. But I'm I'm fine with either one of those. Whatever you want to do, Grant. Whatever you want to do. When I wear a Gandalf hat to the first game in New Zealand, <laughs> then just tell me to stop, please. I will. Um, but uh, looking forward to that whole thing. I yeah. think that's going to be nice. Um, and, you know, like, it was nice to just think about the next Women's World Cup. It's only been a year since the last one, and, and uh, we're recording this on Sunday, a year to the day after after uh, France won, USA 2, Rapino scores twice in what I thought was the game of that tournament. I, uh, I got nervous for a minute when you said France won, and I was like, Grant, they, they did not win. And then I realized you were saying the score, and then I understood what was happening. There we go. I was like, breaking more news that I was not aware of that France won the Women's World Cup, but I'm with you now. I'm with you now. I love scaring you. Um, <laughs> so there's a little other stuff to talk about mm-hmm. here. Real Madrid goes two points ahead of Barcelona in La Liga. Uh, one nothing win at bottom-feeding Espanyol. Yeah. A little bit tougher than I was expecting, and maybe my dad would put it in these terms. That was a good ad for La Liga if, like, the top team in La Liga can can kind of oh. struggle to win against yeah. the bottom team because we often hear that there's only two teams in La Liga. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I, so I have heard. Sometimes there are three, but usually Sometimes. two. Um, yeah, and but I think this is also the old cliche of like you've, you you find a way to win if you want to be the champion you win ugly and you you win games that are unimpressive but you find a way to make it happen here it's Karim Benzema with a ridiculous backheel uh, to Casemiro that gives them that 1-0 win uh, but that's what it takes against teams that are going to be very defensive and make you have to work for it and from what I understand this is the thing that Zidane wants he's o- I mean obviously he's okay with winning the Champions League no one is going to turn that down but winning La Liga is a thing I think that he f- has felt has been neglected or where he hasn't been as successful. So to make that happen, and it does feel like they're on that path because of Barcelona, Barcelona dropping points, I'm going to guess he'll take a one-day win over Espanyol, even though they're at the bottom of the table. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, when Real Madrid needs three points, they're getting them even if they're not at their best. Mm-hmm. Barcelona not getting three points when they're clearly not at their best as nah. they weren't against Celta Vigo. Um, and I feel like, even though it's a two-point lead for Real Madrid, it just feels like more than that. And... Real Madrid has an easier pathway down the stretch than Barcelona does. Yep. I won't, as Denny Green would say, crown them yet, uh, but um, I, I do feel like pretty strongly that Zidane's team is going to win this league. Um, and, you know, credit to him. I mean, mm-hmm. like Zidane, I still feel like he could win like 25 Champions Leagues and people wouldn't think he's like the best coach in the world. And maybe yep. he's not the best coach in the world, but I think he's one of the top three or four. I mean, if nothing else from a man management personality perspective, to come in with Real Madrid in the situation they were in when he comes back in and to get everybody sort of on the same page and find a way to make it work, uh, Gareth Bale still not heavily involved. So maybe Gareth Bale not part of that conversation. But yeah, I think it, it's a credit to him. And the man can wear a suit, which is which is a thing you want when, you, when you're looking at your soccer coaches. He can pull that look off. So that works for me. Even when he's rocking a square tie, I don't mind it. You don't want to clown, uh, crown uh, Real Madrid yet. Are you okay with crowning Liverpool? I am okay with crowning okay. Liverpool. Um, and I, you know, we knew it was coming. Yeah, so I, I, I guess my only question is like, when it happened, did it feel like you thought it would feel as a Man United fan? 
Uh, first of all, hurtful. Uh, second of all, uh, it, I didn't think it was going to happen the day it happened. I was recording an interview uh, for our show as the Chelsea game was was going on, and I, I assumed it was going to be a routine win. I thought it would maybe get a few more points from Liverpool. I didn't think they were going to get any sort of really real pressure, but I didn't see it being kind of killed off as quickly. And really, I just have so many friends who are Liverpool fans. I think most of them uh, kind of signed up around the 2005 Champions League and, and what happened there. But like, and you could call that fair weather. But then, with everything else that happened with Liverpool before and after, like, I don't know if I would go that route. So it's mostly just like my friends who are all very, very excited to get to celebrate. I think what we should be celebrating is the Grant Wall bump because, as I understand it, they did not win the Premier League for decades. Jurgen Klopp comes on your show, they win the Premier League. So that, to me, is the major factor here that we're not talking about. Direct link. I think, I think so. I mean, it hasn't been disproven yet. We'll see what happens. Maybe if he comes on next year and they win it again, or if you have him on again and they win the Champions League, it's, it's the wall bump. It's what we've all been talking about. <laughs> Lastly, mm-hmm. Turner. Turner gives up on Champions League a year yeah. early. Like, like, basically, everyone's saying to Fox Sports, you guys were total yeah. lame ducks on the Bundesliga and punted and didn't do anything, even studio shows. I was wondering Tur- if there was going to be some bitterness about this. <laughs> but, but Turner says, hold my beer. We're not even going to do the whole last season mm-hmm. of Champions League. And beyond that, we're not even going to do the August final eight Champions League tournament for right. this season. Um, what happened here and how does it make you feel? And do you care that much? Um, I do, because I think you're correct that for all the stick we gave Fox, Turner came in, and I think with the kind of idea of we're gonna we're really going to go at this, we're going to take it seriously, uh, I would argue that they made some mistakes in that first season. But I think Daryl, to his credit, did some digging. And I think the major issue comes down to the length of the contract that UEFA is willing to hand out. Because if you look at what other sports Turner has, let's talk baseball for a minute. I think I'm correct in saying that they just signed a... 10-year or 10-plus year deal for $1 billion. But that gives them those 10 years to go about sort of building the awareness that they have it, to get the, the pundits right, to get the personalities right, the coverage right, however you want to put it. And when it's a three-year deal and you're up for renewal after one and a half years and you don't win that bid, like, because everybody is going to keep sort of overbidding and overbidding and overbidding, and I think UEFA wants to make that money, so they're always going to go with the highest bid over, say, the people that they think are doing the best job. Yeah, then if you know you're going to lose it, and and because of coronavirus, you have a half year and then a full year left, you're not going to put money into it. You're going to want to get out of it as quickly as you can, especially if you have potentially baseball coming back, but certainly the NBA, which they're going to be focused on. So I, I get why they didn't do it, but it is simultaneously not the best look and not a thing that I'm particularly thrilled about, no. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that entities can learn, right? Whether it's UEFA with Champions League rights or whether it's any group, Premier League, La Liga, whomever, Bundesliga. I mean, three-year deals, not a great idea, in my opinion. And it's important to note that the Premier League's most recent deal with NBC Sports was for six years. Now, it Mm -hmm. it used to be three. It's now six. And if you have a six-year deal, like NBC is going to be committed to investing and promoting the Premier League. And I think also it's worth noting that NBC with the Premier League, I know some of us complained that the Arsenal game the other day was behind the additional paywall, the NBC gold package. But in general, all the big Premier League games on M- on NBC are available on either NBCSN 
or big NBC. They don't put those mm-hmm. behind the additional paywall. I can't think of a single big yeah. six versus big six Premier League game that's ever been on gold. Yeah, and that's why I'm with you as well, that I had that moment of like, what, the Arsenal game's on? Why is that not on, on television? But I think the telling thing for me was that I was confused by that as opposed to cynical and angry about it. Like, oh, they're doing it again. Of course, they want me to pay for the thing. It felt more like an oversight, a minor mistake as opposed to a deliberate thing to drive subscriptions. Maybe that's me being naive, but that is how I feel. Maybe it's because I love Rebecca Lowe and I enjoy everything that NBC Sports has done. So I'm sort of willing to overlook minor mistakes here and there when their coverage has been as superb as it has been. No, totally in agreement with you on that. And I think NBC continues to be just excellent in everything they do. Well, it's good to talk about the week. Thanks so much for joining me, Taylor. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, for letting me take the time to talk about a lot of things and then not know about the FA Cup draw and be surprised. (laughs) Now, here's my interview with Andres Cantor. Our guest now is an American soccer media legend. Andres Cantor just celebrated his 20th anniversary with Telemundo Deportes, and it is now 30 years since I fell in love with the World Cup in 1990, listening to all of Andres' calls of that World Cup for Univision with the late, great Norberto Longo. Andres, thanks so much for joining me. It is my pleasure, Grant. Thank you very much for the accolades. I guess that makes me old. I don't know if it makes me a legend, but it's been, uh, I'm going into my 30th fifth year of uh, broadcasting soccer on TV, and uh, I really had a a great time uh, seeing the growth of the game here in our country. Well, it's fantastic to have you on the show. First off, how are you doing? How is your family doing? Everyone is is good on our end, thank God. Uh, We cannot complain. I mean, quarantine in Miami in the summer uh, gets to be a little bit testy because it's, it's very hot outside. I mean, you can't really spend as much time outside as uh, they're recommending now that it's you know better to be outside you know have dinner outside with the family and uh but uh, i cannot complain um you know i've been working from home the family is healthy um now i've been going back to to the network a little bit more but uh everyone on our end is safe and uh, nico my son actually is uh, on his way to orlando for the mls tournament so you know, work is work, and he's 26, but I'm a father, and uh, I hope that, you know, uh, everything goes smoothly uh, for him and with him. Yeah, I'll be hoping for the best for him and for MLS inside the bubble in Orlando, their tournament starting soon. Uh, congratulations on 20 years at Telemundo. I know you just celebrated that. Um, it is one of my career highlights that, that one of my media heroes is someone who has become a friend as you have. And, and I just I just want to start with a bit of the news from this week. There was another anniversary this week. It was the 10th anniversary of Landon Donovan's World Cup goal against Algeria. And your call of that goal was a lot of fun to listen to again this week. Absolutely remarkable call. And I'm wondering, what do you remember from that moment and what you were experiencing and, and what it meant to you? First of all, the, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is a true story uh, that I remember from that goal call, is that I almost fainted at the end of it. Um, it never had happened before to me. Uh, you know, radio, when I do play-by-play in radio, I go at a different speed. Uh, I think you and, and your listeners and, and viewers 
know my style. I, I go all in. I mean, I, I leave. I, I feel like I play the game alongside the players when I broadcast it. I have that much energy and, and enthusiasm. And I was witnessing, you know, the failure of the U.S. team to advance to the next round. So my increscendo momentum was even greater in the second half when the ball wasn't going in. So I was like uh, uh, the highest pitch I could be with my voice and with my emotions when that corner kick was taken by Algiers and that almost went in, by the way. And then the counter on Landon and then, you know, the goal meant so much. It, it's incredible because if you think about it, I mean, I saw the reaction of the people 10 years uh, after the fact saying that that has been the greatest goal in American history. And you think about it, and it's only a goal that, you know, gave you passage to, to the next round. But yet, you know, the drama around it, you know, having Bill Clinton on, in, in the VIP booth, uh, the U.S. being eliminated in the first round. So anyways, you know, I was just out of energy, not out of air. Uh, so I went for the last grasp, the goal happened. And then when, uh, if you listen carefully to the end of, of my wrap-up of the goal, not the goal itself, but when I'm explaining Landon Donovan, the best player in the history of the U.S., made it, I start stumbling for words. And the fact is that I had Bora Milutinovic and Marcelo Balboa as my color commentators, as great as they are, they are not broadcast people. So, you know, they weren't ready. You know, if you would have been next to me or any professional broadcaster would have been next to me, you know, you would have picked it up right away because you probably they saw me that I was like, oof, oof. I was like, on a, it was a good, nice, very happy trip at the end of that goal, to tell you the truth. And obviously, I couldn't imagine uh, being radio that that goal call was going to um, be one of my greatest and uh, that I was going to have so much repercussions here in the U.S. As soon as, you know, I went off the air, my cell phone started ringing left and right from, you know, broadcasters here uh, asking me for permission to to replay the goal or to send them the clip and, and interviewing me. And I, you know, I, I gave a couple of interviews and then I went to, you know, I went back to the to the hotel and s to sleep. I was dead. I was really, really tired. So that's what I remember. And obviously the implications it had, you know, as we all know, happiness lasted very, I mean, it was only a, a four day uh, happiness trip after we got eliminated. But uh, yeah, that and, and, and the Marcos Rojo goal for Argentina, exactly the same thing in Russia which uh, the anniversary came, you know, a couple of days later after the Landon Donovan goal. Uh, again, I remember that as, you know, it's a goal for Argentina to avoid embarrassment going, you know, out of the of the group stage. Um, and that was probably one of my most memorable on, on TV as well. Yeah, yeah. Great call as well. Um, I mean, you were born in Argentina. You're a U.S. citizen as well. Um, and I'm wondering, I've always noticed that you, you get just as passionate about the U S national teams, whether it's historic goals by Landon Donovan or Carly Lloyd, as you do for goals by Argentina or Mexico. 
How would you describe the connection that you have built over the years with the United States national team and the growth of soccer here in this country? I'm going to tell you why. It's very simple. I believe I popularized the phrase in 1994 when I coined the phrase in Spanish, la selección de todos, which means everyone's national team. Now everyone uses it. And what I mean by this, you know, we are all obviously a fan of our country of origin. You know, if Argentina plays, I want Argentina to, to win, to do good. But we are all grateful for being either residents, U.S. citizens, or just plainly grateful to, to live in this country. So, you know, for us or for many people that don't have a team to root for in the, in the World Cup, but that they live in America, you know, the national team should be everyone's, everyone else's national team. Uh, the connection is, is very simple, Grant. We, when I uh, started working or, or when, you know, when we launched Football de Primera way back in 1987, uh, it was launched by my partner, Alex Goodman, and he also launched, uh, you know, he was also a very, uh, uh, you know, he wanted the U.S. to do well. He wanted to position. He was a former player. We all wanted soccer to succeed in this country. So he thought that there was no recognition for the U.S. national team. So we launched, I don't know if you remember, you probably do because I, I believe you, you voted. We launched the Honda Player of the Year Award. It, it was a, an award that we held for 20 years where we asked the voting, uh, we, we asked the, um, the, the media, both in the Hispanic and non-Hispanic side, uh, to vote for the best three players of the U.S. national team. I have to explain to the millennials that are listening now that in 1991, you could go out in the street and ask 10 people to name one uh, player in the U.S. national team and nobody would know, not even one. Um, we started that in 1991. Uh, not only did the, um, you know, it was a Hispanic-driven promotion. It was sold to the Hispanic division of Honda. And suddenly it took off and it, it became the most coveted prize for the players. Not only because of the recognition, I mean, not only because of the car, I should say it the other way around. The winner got a brand new car, a brand new Honda. Right. Uh, but not only because of that, but because of the recognition, you know, nationwide and, and worldwide. So we were always very close to the U.S. national team. We had many friends from Boda, from Steve Sampson, from, you know, later on, a little bit more far detached with, with Bruce and with Bob. You know, we, I find them all, you know, extremely grateful human beings, very, very interesting, very witty, smart. Um, they all came to the event. So we had, you know, that connection uh, as we were growing and building the, the awards. So that is why uh, I, you know, I have a dual citizenship, but hey, I live in this country. I have lived in this country far longer than I lived in Argentina. So, you know, I'm voting on November. <laughs> uh, you better believe it. Uh, I, I voted every, I mean, every time I, I had to. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I always want the U.S. national team to, to do well. And that's where the uh, uh, connection happened. Okay. So let's go back in time a little bit. You were born in Argentina. 
how did you first develop a love for the sport of soccer? And, and why do you love the sport so much? Well, you've been there. Um, now I'm going to talk to the uh, boomers or whatever age group is, is listening. When I grew up in the late 60s, uh, early 70s, uh, soccer was pretty much the 95% dominant sport in Argentina. Everyone played it. Everyone still plays it. Everyone still loves it. You know, nowadays, nowadays with, you know, the globalization, if you will, you know, the NBA is very popular. Uh, tennis and boxing has uh, had its niche audience way back then. You know, we had a great tennis player in Vilas uh, and we had great boxers. But, I mean, football was a part of our culture, part of our DNA. I played it uh, as a young kid. Uh, I played it here in the U.S. when I went to high school. I went to college. Um, and then, you know, I always joke saying that then I quit my career because there was no NASL or no MLS around. So I, I didn't have anywhere else to, to go, which is not true, actually. Um, so, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, skipping school, ditching school sometimes to go play. Uh, we played on the weekends. Then my dad took me to the stadiums on the weekends. So, I mean, all kids in Argentina, at least in, in that before, you know, this age and time, uh, in those days, we grew up with the love for the sport as, you know, just a, a form of entertainment as well. We played it, you know, all weekend long. Was there a particular game announcer who was your favorite in Argentina? And, and, and if you had a favorite, how would you describe the style of that announcer? Well, it's, it's, it's crazy because, you know, I, I did listen to a couple of years ago to a couple of uh, games that I found on somebody sent me a link. I grew up way back then. Television wasn't the dominant medium. Radio was. So we all listened to Jose Maria Munoz. Jose Maria Munoz was like the Chick Hearn of uh, the LA Lakers, you know, for 30 years. Everyone listened to Jose Maria Munoz. Everyone. He had a 75% share in radio if there were any other two, three radio stations broadcasting the game. He was very old style because that's the way, uh, you know, they used to broadcast games on, on radio back then. But he was very passionate, very, very passionate, very knowledgeable about the game. Um, so I grew up listening to him. And then, you know, parallel to me being here, of course, I started listening to Victor Hugo Morales, the great Uruguayan who, is, uh, who lives in, in Argentina. And, you know, to me, it's, it's one of the greatest play-by-play -play guys in, in Spanish. Uh, but basically, you know, my upbringing was having, you know, my old transistor radio next to my ear, uh, listening to Jose Maria Munoz, either on the games that I didn't attend, or even when I went to the stadium with a radio to listen to, to his play-by-play. -play. Nice. Um, and, and what led to you and your family moving to the United States? Well, my, both my dads are professional. My, my parents are, are professional. My dad is a gastroenterologist was he retired already and my mom is a retired psychologist they both live happily in quarantine in in los angeles where my brother lives my dad was the president of uh, one of the most important hospitals even though he also had his private practice um, and the situation with the dictatorship was pretty rough at the time they were 
you know, intervening the hospital. They they want they didn't want uh, uh, terrorists quote unquote being treated and just left to die. And you know, doctors who were being threatened. And uh, you know, I guess he had enough. He did his uh, he finished his career here. Uh, he did his fellowship here, uh, both in Washington and, and in LA. So he had many people that he still knew from those days and he was able to get a scholarship at UC Davis in Sacramento uh, in 1976. So he moved, you know, he, he decided that I remember that one Saturday, Sunday afternoon, he gathered us all. I was uh, 13, almost 14 in the living room and said, we're leaving the country. We're going to California. And, you know, my mom didn't want to go. My brother was, I believe, too little to, to understand. And I started crying and I, you know, I threw a fit. And, uh, you know, he decided to take us to the movies to calm us all down. And then nothing. I mean, I don't remember how soon after that we we landed in, in L.A. and then made a trip up to Sacramento. But that is the reason... Um, I moved to to the U.S. as a as a teenager. Okay, and were you able to watch the nineteen seventy eight World Cup at least on television, or was that possible? I, yes, no, I went back. I went back to watch it uh, personally. Uh, that okay. was uh, a condition. There, there were two situations that happened along the way. We moved. My parents had uh, the working visa or whatever visa you know a scholarship gives you. And they were, uh, since, you know, the, the intention was just to, you know, stay in the U.S., they started the process of getting the uh, green card. When uh, summer came after my, I only, only went to school like for four months, I believe. Didn't understand the word. I was miserable. Uh, you know, people were asking me, where are you from? I, I said Argentina and they said, oh, Rio. I said, no, man. Rio's Brazil. Um, it was tough. It was tough. I had no no knowledge of the language, of the culture. Of uh, I, I missed my games. I missed my Boca Juniors. I missed my you know going to the stadium. I missed my friends, my school. I missed everything. So, uh, long story short, the lawyer said, you know, you're both professionals. Just have your son go to Argentina, because you know the green card will. Uh, uh, you'll get the green card during the summer and you have to go back to Argentina anyways to claim it because you, when you get a green card, you have to claim it at the embassy, at the U.S. embassy of your country of origin. It's not that you get the green card physically uh, by being here in the U.S. So I left and uh, the green card, instead of taking two months, like the lawyer said, took like nine. So I was stranded there in, well, stranded, quote, unquote. I had the time of my life with my friends. Uh, they kicked me out of three... Uh, or three houses, three different houses. I lived with my with my uncle first, and then with another aunt, and I ended up living with my parents' best friends in Buenos Aires. I was a rebel teenager alone. You can imagine. So that's one story. So then I came back, and when I, you know, when finally the green card uh, came out, we moved to LA from Sacramento to to LA, where my dad started his private practice. And I told her, I'm going back in nine, now that I can go back. The World Cup, is, it's a must. So I went back and uh, I, I witnessed personally at 15 uh, the, the World Cup. Nice. So did you, were you able to go to any games? or? I you... went to all of them. I went to all the Argentina games. 
all the Argentina nice. games. Uh, the, the way the tickets were sold back then, you had to buy the series by stadium. So everyone that uh, figured that Argentina would make it far bought the, the tickets for River Plate Stadium, thinking that Argentina was going to be first of group, which didn't happen because Italy beat them. Uh, so I had tickets for the second round at River at Monumental Stadium that were worthless. So they were for Italy and not for Argentina. So, uh, you know, my teenage mind started searching for uh, the Italian tourists. I, I knew where they were or I found out where they were. I went to their hotel and traded their tickets. They had come all the way thinking that Italy was going to be second of group. So they had tickets to Rosario, which is 400 kilometers away from Buenos Aires. So I just exchanged the tickets. So I saw all, all of Argentina's games. Nice. That's, that's awesome. Um, you know, obviously Argentina goes on to win that World Cup uh, in, in Argentina. First victory, obviously 1986 being the second. Um, you, you went to college at the University of Southern California. Uh, what was that experience like? And did you always know that you wanted to be in sports media? Yes, I, I knew it from a very young age. After coming back from the stadium with my dad, um, I don't know why, don't ask me why, because I was, you know, 12, 13. I came back and I started writing the, you know, what I saw about the game, I, I, a story about the game that I just watched on my dad's old uh, typewriter. Um, I, I had the sense that I always wanted to be a journalist. In high school, I became, in my last year of high school uh, here in San Marino, I became the editor of the high school newspaper um, I'm going to tell you a funny, funny story, which is true. Um, you know, we could argue this in a journalism class at NYU one day, because it's kind of, I should have recused myself from writing, but it, I never said anything that wasn't true. I played in the soccer team, the San Marino soccer team, which made it to the finals of CIF. I was the editor of the paper and of the sports section, so I wrote the article about the game. Uh, so the byline said by Andres Cantor, and who happened to be the best player on the field every other, every other game? Andres Cantor, which it said in the article, which is, it was kind of weird, but you know, what am I going to say? That I played like, like crap when I didn't? I, I did. That was, that was one of my proudest uh, soccer moments in my life. But uh, anyway, you should have, uh, should have me talk about this. Um, so anyways, I, I had the journalism thing in me. And then I went to USC. This is incredible, Grant, because I wanted to be a writer. I started writing for a Grafico magazine, which was Sports Illustrated. It was the Bible of Hispanic sports in, Latin, in any Hispanic country, even in Spain. And I was like, whoa, I, I wrote my first article for them when I was uh almost 17 that is like you know for uh, i don't know anyone uh, a, a player making it to the national team at, at 17 i was like you know i was in heaven and i wanted to write and i spent the next four years of my college career my college education taking uh you know just plain journalism not i didn't take one broadcast course hmm. and back then the journalism classes were three units instead of the four that every other class was. So I had a shortfall of seven classes and I never thought of taking one broadcast 
class. I took anthropology, I took PE, I took whatever, you know, the easiest ones. Anthropology didn't <laughs> end up being that easy. But um, it's incredible that, you know, the, the, in Spanish we say las vueltas de la vida. The, you know, terms of life, I guess, would be that, you know, I ended up working both in radio and TV and yet, you know, I finished my journalism uh, in, in U at USC, but not having taken one broadcast, broadcast class. That's incredible. Um, so did you go to the 1986 World Cup in Mexico that was won by Argentina? Did that, when, how did that come in time compared to when you got your job with Univision? I went, first I went to the 1982. Uh, I was around already, the, 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 my, full, my friends from El Grafico, but you know, I wasn't uh, writing or, or, or anything. Um, and then uh, in 1986, I, I worked for El Grafico magazine during that World Cup, and also for a magazine from the same publishing company called Somos. Um, and uh, cover the World Cup entirely for them. Somos was more like a time like magazine, more politically, but you know, they had like a sports section and obviously during the World Cup, you know, they, they wanted to cover the World Cup. Uh, I started working at in Univision in February of 1987. Um, so that was uh, almost eight months after the, the World Cup. And then, you know, did my first World Cup in TV in Italy 90. And I mean, obviously this is the age of Maradona. Um, did, were you able to develop uh, a relationship with him during this time? Yes, I, I did. He came to Los Angeles a couple of times. Um, I, I told this the other day, somebody's writing a book that is going to be published um, now at the end of October when he turns 60. So I guess, Somebody told him, you know, get everyone that has been kind of acquainted with him, uh, sent different stories. He wanted, you know, something that nobody knows. And I told him a couple of these stories, which uh, one of them was that uh, he came with the youth national team that later played in Japan and won the World Cup in 1979. They stopped in LA and trained for like a week and played a couple of friendlies there before you know, 50,000 people. In LA, the, you know, they brought on many friendly games. It was the, the, the time when there was no television, no internet, no nothing. And to watch your team um, or to watch just soccer, you know, you had to go and attend a, a friendly game. So they were like packed. So I spent a good entire week when he was, uh, I believe he was 19. I you know, there was some type of chemistry, I don't know why, you know, saying that you're from El Grafico opens doors. So I spent most of the week with him and I, I, I you know, I wrote in, in the book that he wanted to buy a Camaro, a, a Chevy Camaro <laughs> and take it to Argentina. So I went with him and man, that was one of the scariest uh, stories, uh, experiences of my life. You know, we went and he gave his, his passport, uh, this and that. And then, you know, he wanted to race the Camaro through the streets. You know how car dealers have the ways that they know where there's no traffic and, you know, they take you, make a right here, make a left here. Forget it. And obviously I was a translator. 
Diego took off and the, the, the salesman, I was in the back seat, the salesman was in the, in the passenger seat, was begging me to tell him, slow down. And Maradona was telling me, if I'm going to buy a Camaro, I'm not going to go at 40 kilometers an hour. So it was just, Yung! oh my God, that was. And then, you know, he had his family there and I took him around Beverly Hills and Bel Air. And I missed the scoop of my life back then because I have, uh, I was always constantly being sent to Vegas for, for the boxing fights to cover, you know, not only the Argentine boxers, but the big, you know, main events. And I had not befriended, but I, I knew Howard Bingham, which was Muhammad Ali's um, uh, personal photographer and then became his manager. So, you know, I said, what if I get them both? This would be, you know, El Grafico cover, Muhammad Ali and young Maradona. He agreed. Muhammad Ali did. They told me, be at this address at 11 a.m. No more because Mr. Ali has, you know, other things to do later on. So I get to the hotel where Diego was. There was a whole bunch of, of news media waiting for him to come down the elevator. I go into the elevator up to his room. I tell him, Diego, there's a lot of people downstairs. We need to get, this is not near your hotel. We need to get going fast. Please, you know, I don't want you to be a jerk, but we need to get on my car and go. So don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You know, the elevators open up and the typical scene that you have seen throughout his career it was like, boom, the guy couldn't move. We got on the car, we got there. Grant, I swear to God, it was probably not even 10 minutes, maybe 11.08. I ring the, it was a gay community. I ring the, the doorbell, the, the, the thing, and says, Andres Cantor from El Grafico, I'm here with Maradona. I'm sorry, Mr. Ali left two minutes ago. I said, you're kidding, but I have Maradona here. Can I come back? And he said, no, we told you 11 o'clock. I cried on the inside and then on the outside after I left him back in the hotel. So that's where I got to know him. And then I was lucky enough to go uh, spend time with him the two times that he won the Scudetto with, with Napoli and, and witness that that crazy passion that the Napolitans have for him after he made them, he, he put them on the map. Thanks for sharing that. That was amazing. Um, yeah. And so I, I mentioned earlier, uh, Norberto Longo. I, I, for me, this is special because that's, I watched almost every game of the 1990 World Cup that you guys broadcast. And I felt like you guys had a great chemistry. I used to love watching you guys do MLS games together and, and he'd complain about the level of play. We, we um, both did. Yes. <laughs> How would you describe the partnership you guys had? I'm going to tell you another funny story because th th this is incredible because obviously we, we were a broadcasting couple for 15 years and he became, even though he was, you know, older than I was, um, you know, we became very, very good friends. Um, we had chemistry. The, I mean, the, one of the most ni the nicest things people can say to me is that even though this is not because I think we were, but one of the nicest things I take from my partnership with him is so many years after his death, people coming up to me and saying, 
your chemistry with Norberto has never been duplicated in Hispanic TV. And I say, wow. And this is, this is another funny story. Norberto used to work for Telem what was the young Telemundo of those days. I, ha I got hired by Univision. He gets uh, hired by Univision, but he lived in Miami. Univision was in LA. So they flew him uh, every weekend to call the games. But his first game with me, and I, of course I knew Norberto from watching him here um, on, on TV, and also I remembered him from Argentina, from watching you know the boxing matches in Argentina. So the first, the very first broadcast that I did with him was going to be the opener of Copa America 1989 in Brazil. He had, it was a Saturday, I believe, he had a boxing broadcast in Phoenix or somewhere uh, on Friday night. There was weather or uh, I don't, doesn't matter. His flight got delayed. So I, the young kid, two years into the job, had to open the broadcast of our first major tournament, which is Copa America. So he didn't get there until, I would say, somewhere in the middle of the first half, minute 16, minute 20. He jumps on the set, shakes my hand silently, and I say, and you know, I had never met him before. And while I'm doing, bah, 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 you know, he jumps in and bah, 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 he jumps in and it was just a natural. And it was like, I don't know if it was because, you know, I had the, the, the music of, of soccer from Argentina and he was from Argentina. And, you know, I already uh, knew, you know, how to, 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 to do the, obviously I had been calling games for two years, but the chemistry was like right away. Uh, with a person that I had never seen personally and that not only that we never prepped and he came into the broadcast 20 minutes into the game and just shook my hand and then the rest is history <laughs> that's a great story too oh wow so the world cup comes to the U.S. in 1994 and you really became a crossover star at that point I felt like so you were on David Letterman you were on other shows even people who didn't know much about soccer loved your passion, loved your goal calls. What was it like for you to experience that level of recognition? Um, it was crazy. It was really, really crazy. First of all, let me say that in all three World Cups that I did for Univision in, in Italy, the U.S. and France, I was the only play-by-play. -play. So I called every single game of those World Cups. You can imagine that with my energy i was like really really tired in all three but i'm you know like oh i always say uh to everyone either at football de primera when we do the world cups or now that we did the first one at, at telemundo you know i i gather the troops and i say guys i don't want to hear nobody complaining this is only once every four years and this is the pinnacle of our career so you know if you only sleep two hours a day but then Nobody told me that. And in 1994, I was like, whoa, really? Uh, because not only was I calling three games a day, but then, you know, this whole momentum of, of people wanting to interview me after the matches or in between the matches started happening from, you know, national networks here in the U.S., Hispanic media, international media. They come to Miami to, to interview me on the phone 
And at one given point, I, I told the, you know, the network, I said, I need to rest. I said, no, but this is good. You know, look at the exposure we're getting. You know what was funny, Grant, is that the newscasts, I mean, ABC was broadcasting in English. And yet, even in, in their own ABC affiliates, they were running Univision highlights with my goal calls of, of the games. Uh, not even, they, they weren't even using their, their announcers. That was, I mean, that was really, really crazy. I mean, I, I cannot imagine what it would have been now, you know, a similar situation now with all, you know, with how easy it is with social media to, to transcend beyond. But the, the recognition my, my work had in 1994 was absolutely uh, unprecedented. Uh, I didn't plan it. I didn't do anything to, to provoke it. I was my own self that I was four years ago in, in Italy. And then the funny thing is that the last day of the group stage, they, they tell me that I need to go into a meeting after the third game. I, I'm going to tell you another story, what it meant for me. One of the things that I, that I cherish the most, I remember the, the day the U.S. beat Colombia. We were doing the games from our Miami studio. Uh, the day the U.S. beat Colombia... Uh, there was a huge newsroom. I mean, the studios were like way, way in the back of the building. And you had to cross the newsroom, the local affiliate newsroom, to get to our sports uh, desk, which were on all the way on the other side of the building. And, you know, when I felt we were doing something, when U.S. qualified to the next round after beating Colombia, and I walked back the corridors and I had a standing ovation from the Univision employees. I mean, the whole building started clapping. And I said, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and chants of USA, USA. And I said, whoa, I think we're making noise here. That was one of the most beautiful things that happened in my career. So anyways, going back to the last day of group stages, tell me if I'm boring and, and I'll just no, cut no, the, no, no, no. the answer short. The opposite. Uh, I said, they told me I, I have to go into a meeting. All I wanted was to rush home and, and, and go to sleep and disappear from the face of the earth for one day, which was, I believe there was only one or two rest days until the next round. They locked me up in a room and they say, David Letterman called, you're invited to the show tomorrow. And I said, who is David Letterman? I played dumb. I knew who David Letterman was, of course. I said, who? No, I'm sorry. I'm you're not hearing from me. I'm going to disappear. Uh, I'm not going. And I started, you know, arguing and fighting. And then, you know, I left the building saying I'm not going. And then I receive a call. Uh, once I get home, uh, I got a call from the CEO of the company saying, <laughs> you know, Andres, we understand you're doing a great job. Uh, I know you're tired, but you know what it would mean the exposure for the network that you go, you'd be the first Hispanic. Back then I probably was, maybe. So anyways, uh, I did, I did go. And and, it, and it's one of those things, you know, people, uh, there are two things that people remind me all of the time. Those that are old enough remind me that I was on David Letterman. I mean, I've called, I don't know, 10,000 <laughs> games in my life or whatever. And older people remind me, you were on David Letterman. And now the younger generation, oh, my God, you were on The Simpsons. You, I mean, you made it if you were on The Simpsons. I, and for me, it was like, oh, yeah, right. How about the other, you know, 10,000 games and 35 years of, 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 you know, being around the game? 
But those are, are how I got into what I felt in, in 1994. <laughs> That's great. I mean, you, you're, you called more than 10,000 games. If you had to pick one game that you would say for you is the most memorable game you have ever called, what would it be and why? Uh, it's, it's very tough. Um, the USA Colombia, for sure, has to be up there. Um, because of what it meant. I mean, you have to understand San Marino. I, I mentioned San Marino High School. San Marino High School is about, San Marino, the, the city of San Marino is about 10 miles away from the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. So I, I was uh, so, I mean, this was like the perfect story. You know, the World Cup final being played in my backyard. Um, so, you know, and that game I attended in person. I went to the opening match in Chicago and only to to the um, to, to the final in person, and then called the the rest of tube in, in Miami. So you you know, like we discussed earlier, what it meant for the U.S. national team program being you know through to the next round. I cherish that you know the Ernie Stewart goal. Uh, which was, you know, the clincher uh, as probably one of my, I don't know if it was one of my best, but it was probably one of my, my most memorable. Let, let me go by World Cups, which is going to be easier. Uh, in 1990, the Freddy Rincón from Colombia goal against Germany that put them through in the also 92nd minute. Uh, that was one of my finest back then. That was my first World Cup on TV. In 98... Uh, probably the oof, I had a rough time with Argentina Holland or, or actually Argentina I'm going to tell you another story Argentina England uh, was probably the toughest for so many reasons um, and, and I remember the headline in a Spanish newspaper that that you know had a clip of my call and, and it said even the the play-by-play -play guy at, at Univision remember his mother um, because I, I was very emotional because my mother, I was in France and my mother had been diagnosed, was going through chemo for breast mm -hmm. cancer. Um, and I wasn't able, you know, it wasn't that I had FaceTime to see her all the time. So we were just making telephone calls and, you know, I wanted to be with her. Um, and I knew that she was watching and, you know, when the, the Argentinian goalkeeper first, you know, we all understand what Argentina beating England means. Um, and uh, when the Argentinian made the, the goalkeeper made the last save, uh, I started saying, you know, and this is for my mother. And, you know, I, I, made, I, I sent uh, like a subliminal message so she could understand, but and everyone picked it up. So that was a, a very emotional game uh, in, in, in all uh, circumstances. Uh, 2002, oof, that was my first in radio. I don't know if I can remember. Uh, well, the the the, art, the USA Germany, yeah, definitely. Uh, the USA, yeah, USA Germany was in 02, right? Now I'm that was 02, it. and that's after uh, USA Mexico in the round of 16. Yeah, well, USA Mexico. Yeah, it was tough. The Mexico games are always tough because, you know, you have to be extremely careful of every word that comes out of your mouth, knowing that, 
seven out of ten people that are listening or watching are, are Mexicans. And you know how volatile the World Cup is. I mean, you say, I've gotten calls from people saying, hey, why are you yelling the Mexico goals longer than the Uruguayan goals or the Argentinian goals? I don't yell anything longer than anything. It has to do with how much longer I have in my, in my how much air I have in my lungs. Uh, 06, I remember the, oof, I, I saw it here. I saw it here, the, the De Rossi, was it? No, who was it? De Rossi, right? Uh, elbow on, on Brian, on McBride. Yeah, Brian, yeah. The Italy, yeah, the Italy, USA. Uh, I remember the Argentina, Mexico. That was, that was a hell of a game with Maxi Rodriguez in overtime, uh, half volley. Uh, in 2010, that, that is the, the, the World Cup I, I probably enjoy the most. Wonderful country, wonderful people, uh, just chills of seeing Nelson Mandela from way far aside in the broadcast booth being paraded around in the golf cart. Just, I mean, up to this day, hey, you know, I lived and I saw him from far away, but uh, I love that was his I last. Loved, pu- that was his la- his last public appearance. Uh, it probably was. Was yes. was that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It probably was. In uh, in fourteen, obviously. The Argentina Holland that made that made us finalists, and I had a, a great deal of pain yelling the Gotze goal in mm-hmm. in the final. And in 2018, you know, I was just happy to to be back in TV after so many years after the World Cups in in radio. Um, and I remember, you know, how nervous I usually don't get nervous, too nervous anymore before, you know, when with the final countdown for going on air. But, um, you know, I, I remember I remember that as, as a, a nice World Cup. I can't pinpoint one game. And one goal that I, I have to say that I cherish a lot was the Carly Lloyd uh, goal from, from midfield in the 2015 World Cup final um, yeah. in, in Vancouver. That was like, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was... Her hat trick 15 minutes into the game on a World Cup final. And I I told her this. I don't know if you realize. I, I don't I don't care. I'm not. It's it's the greatest performance, regardless of of gender, that I've seen in a World Cup final. And uh, yeah, she was amazing. I mean, and that goal was incredible. Well, I I still think you were pretty incredible because as I recall, you called that women's World Cup final in Vancouver, Canada, in person, literally the day after you had called the men's Copa America final in Chile. And I was stunned to see you walk into the press area in in Vancouver because I was like, what is Andres doing here? How did did you do that? Um, I'm going to tell you how I did it. It cost me a lot of money. First revelation in public. I'm going, but you know, we're friends. Nobody's listening. Nobody's watching. I'm going to tell you. Um, I had, I was given the green light by the network to go and finish Copa America, um, even though I had started calling the FIFA Women's World Cup from our studios in in Miami. Um, all of a sudden, you know, the the build up gets greater and greater. We weren't covering that. I don't believe we covered every game or we might have. But uh, anyways, the U.S. women's national team makes it to the final 
even though it was Canada, you know, it was like almost having it here because of the noise that was being generated around the U.S. women's national team. And uh, I get the call. Uh, I said, they tell me you have to be in Vancouver for the World Cup final. Poof. Okay, got my agent involved. I said, but you gave me the green. I mean, I don't have another play-by-play down here in Chile. Um, so we compromised in this. And in a sense, I was lucky that Chile was the champion. If Argentina would have been the champion, you might be talking today with me uh, as anchor in another network. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I compromised that I would be there. There was a flight that left, I don't know, three hours or two hours after uh, after the final whistle uh, from Santiago to Dallas, an American Airlines flight. Um, I had, you know, they booked me on that to Dallas. I chartered my own private jet from Dallas to to Vancouver. I paid it <laughs> out of my own pocket. Uh, just to make sure that I got there in time, because I, I, even though there was one connecting commercial connecting flight, it was too risky, too risky. It would have gotten me there uh, one hour, one hour before you know I had to leave the hotel, and this gave me like leeway of four hours, I believe. So, anyways, uh, why did I say that I was lucky that Chile won? Because the game went into overtime, as you recall, and then into penalty kicks. And I'm saying, oh, my God, this is the worst scenario possible. We had scouted with our driver in Chile, you know, for him to be as close as to my exit door as possible to just whisk me away. The game goes into overtime. The game goes into penalties. Chile wins. Everyone stays inside the stadium for the cup for for the trophy presentation right and everyone stays in their home to watch the trophy presentation so there was nobody in the streets so alexis sanchez scores i literally says alexis sanchez goal goal chile campeon chile champion boom i threw my my headsets and i took off i had called i had arranged with the driver i had scouted the area the day before Arranged with the driver, I had called American Airlines with all my perks of, you know, flying so much with them to make sure they waited for me. I got into that plane. They knew that I was coming. They checked me in. They literally pushed me into the plane, closed the door behind me, and we took off. Uh, If Argentina would have won, all the people would have gone out of the stadium with me, and all the traffic would have probably prevented me from... from, uh, from making the flight. That's how I got there. I'm glad you didn't have a Muhammad Ali Maradona moment. No, <laughs> thank <case>. God. <laughs> <laughs> well, also too, I mean, that's such a classic call on Carly Lloyd's uh, half field goal that uh, that you had that uh, I'm, I'm glad you made it. Uh, we're winding down here with Andres Contour. I could stay here for hours with you, but uh, uh, want to respect your time. Um, I do want to bring up something that I think started pretty soon thereafter, after 2015, your fitness regimen, your physical fitness is an amazing story. And 
I was just wondering if you could share with with listeners, you know, you know how that came about and and how much weight that you lost. Yeah, it, it actually happened when I got back uh, from the Olympics in 2016. Um, I used to do. I didn't know what spinning was until my daughter Andrea told me that you gotta go spinning. I said, "What you gotta do spinning?" I said, "What's spinning?" And then I didn't you know, liked it that much, but I started doing it. When I got back from the Olympics, the gym where I was doing spinning got sold. And the new owner came up to me and said, you know, I know who you are. I, I grew up listening to you, blah, blah, blah. If you ever need a personal trainer, let me know because I'm not only the owner, but I also, you know, a trainer here. I'm going to train, do personal training sessions. So I said, okay, why not? So I started with him. Uh, so I did spinning and then I went and, and had one hour of physical trainer with him or trainer training with him. I never liked, never liked weights. Never. I, I mean, I, I always did cardio. I always was kind of, I mean, I don't know how unfit I was, but I was a, a very active, chubby man all my life. I always either played soccer or, you know, did treadmill or, or bikes or just stationary bikes, uh, ellipticals, always cardio, never weights, never weight training. So I started working with him and, as, you know, he told me you have to change this habit, that habit, food-wise. And I started, you know, seeing the results. And then, you know, I, I guess my motivation was, you know, the, the World Cup in 2018, you know, sometimes you have to set goals. Uh, and I said, you know, I'll, I'll try to be as lean and as fit as I can because, you know, I have a hectic schedule. But then, you know, I figured, you know, what am I saying? I, I should be fit because of, of my lifestyle. Uh, I'm not, you know, that young anymore. So I started losing weight. I lost altogether like uh, 45 pounds, I believe. But I, I also shrank uh, many sizes. Uh, wow. If you want to know, uh, I think I told Ives. Uh, one day this story and, and he laughed um, one of my most uh, memorable goal calls that wasn't a goal was in Los Angeles I don't remember when what tournament it was I had a day off and I went shopping for shorts because it was so hot it was in the middle of the summer obviously and I went into this store and of course I, I do know that brands cheat on the measurements, you know, a 34 is not really a 34, it's probably a 36, but nonetheless, I never was able to fit in anything under 40, under 40. So anyways, I go into this dressing room and ask, I take these shorts that were 34, and I say, what the hell, I'm gonna try them on, see if they fit. And they did, and I go, yeah! <laughs> and the lady goes, are you all right? Yeah, yeah, long story. Yeah, give me two pairs, one blue, one white. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so I just kept on training. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I train every single day, probably from then on. And, you know, I, I've tried to eat healthier and just manage my level of stress and, and sleep better and, you know, have better decisions. And I'm, I'm very happy with my transformation, uh, none other because of, you know, it's, it's healthy and it's, it's good for anyone that can do it and everyone can do it if they think they're, you know, a little bit overweight.
Couple more questions for you. One, you mentioned your son, Nico, who has started an announcing career of his own with Univision. I would think that has to give you a lot of pride. It, it does. It, it, it gives me enormous pride. You know, both my kids give me enormous pride. My, my daughter is a professional as well. She, she lives in New York. Now she's, you know, during the pandemic, she's here with us. We're all here like the good old days. Um, so yeah, you know, Nico, uh, I believe is earning his way through. I love it that he's doing it at Univision where I started. Uh, and I love it that he's doing it there because whatever, you know, he does, he will do it by his own merit and not because he's the son of, uh, whereas, you know, if he would have worked for Telemundo, anything that we, he would have gained professionally, you know, they would have said, oh, yeah, of course, he's a, the son of Andres. Um, and I'm, I'm extremely proud, not only because he can, you know, do this craft in, in, Eng in Spanish, but he can do it in English. He's uh, multilingual. I mean, he could probably call games in French and Portuguese. Uh, he's, he's that good. He's very talented and he's a, a good, good kid. And I love, you know, the way his career is shaping up. And... Lastly, I get a question a lot from fans who want to know if I think the U.S. men's national team will ever win a World Cup in our lifetime. What do you say when you get asked that question? I say anything is possible. Um, the World Cup is a very tricky tournament, usually, historically. Almost the same powerful teams win, but then if you catch a break, look at Croatia. You know, don't tell me, or, or France, don't tell me that they were the overwhelming favorites to make it to the final. Croatia, for God's sake, played an extra full game with the three overtimes that they had making it to the final. Uh, even though, obviously, everyone has great players, uh, so did Croatia. But, you know, if you catch, I mean, what if they would have called the handball in... Not that we would have won it, but, you know, you need to catch breaks. You need to be lucky in the in the draw. I always say, Grant, the most important day of the World Cup is the, before the, the ball starts rolling is the World Cup draw. Because if not only do you know who you play, but you know your path to the final. If you're lucky enough, I mean, lucky enough, I mean, we're talking about the 32 best teams in the world, but... Obviously, there are some teams that you would rather play in the second knockout stage than others. If you get a lucky break, you know, and you keep progressing, uh, anything can happen. But again, in our lifetime, lifetime, you say, um, I believe the average, uh, the, the mortality rate in the U.S. is, uh, what, 74? Uh, so I got four World Cups left to see this happening. <laughs> Oh, what a what a gloomy thought to to finish the podcast. Now hold on, let me I, let me change that. I, I prefer to think, by the way, that with all of your fitness work, you're gonna blow past that, my friend. No, no, let me let me answer it. I mean, I don't see this team. Uh, first of all, let's make let, let's hope that they qualify to the next World Cup. Um, <laughs> yes, but anything it's uh, in a World Cup. If you catch a break, obviously you gotta have a good team. Uh, I don't know. I think the U.S. Uh, national team players are extraordinary athletes. The, the, the U.S. players are, are extraordinary athletes. The, the U.S. 
athletes are extraordinary athletes, even though it might sound redundant. Uh, they can, you know, probably compete with anybody on any given day. Uh, they could win, they could tie, they could lose. But, you know, if, if they get the act together at, at the U.S. Federation and, and figure out, you know, the, 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 the best way moving forward, I mean, I don't want to be overcritical of, of Greg right now because he hardly played any games. But, you know, I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm going to give him, I, I, I want to be very respectful of, of Greg Berhalter. Um, you know, I, I will give him the benefit of the doubt. What I'm trying to say is that perhaps, and of course the coach doesn't kick the ball into the net, the players do, but perhaps the U.S. could afford it to bring on a higher profile coach that could, you know, try to get something else out of the, of the, of the players. But then again, on the other hand, you know, you need somebody that knows the system, that knows the players, that know, you know, how this country works. It's not an easy country to coach in because of, of how big it is and, and how politically it is and political it is and how players, you know, you have to go find them somewhere else. And, you know, colleges are pretty much a, a waste of of any anyone's time and 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 it's the the structure is totally different than it is in the rest of the world so i don't know i hope so uh let's let's finish on a on a upbeat note i i hope that uh we see the u.s national team winning the world cup before in our lifestyles live time uh so we still got a way to go i, I always tell people i plan to live to 150 so <laughs> okay. if, they, if they ask that question <laughs> But Andres Cantor it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and, and share so many great stories. Thank you so much. It has been my pleasure and all the best in this uh, podcast um, world that you're, you, uh, I mean, you had great guests and I'm, I'm honored to be uh, among the company of, of your guests in the podcast that you have been doing, Grant. And it's always very, very nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Andres Cantor as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I also want to thank Taylor Rockwell and Daryl Grove of the Total Soccer Show for everything they've done to get this show off the ground. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.